You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Growing up, I was a big baseball fan. It was the sport. You know, we would get together with friends and we would play baseball in the field behind our church. Just a bunch of, you know, middle school boys, you know, playing baseball, having the times of our lives. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And in fact, uh, you know, we, I lived in Virginia. I lived uh, in the southeastern portion of Virginia. So the D.C. Baltimore area wasn't too far away. So a couple times as a youth group and as a little kid, we traveled up to Camden Yards in Baltimore. Uh, this is a picture of me around 2004, 2005. I'm the kid smiling. I'm such a cute kid, I know. Um, with my dad, we, we went to Camden Yards. And I believe this game, we saw the Yankees versus the Orioles. Uh, an exciting game. I don't remember anything about the outcome. But I do remember uh, going a few years later to see the Red Sox play the Orioles. And my dad, he is from Massachusetts. Uh, his, his grandfather immigrated from Sweden. They, they settled in the Boston area, and that's where uh, their family is from. They later moved to the western part of the state, but I grew up with Boston in my blood. I'm a Red Sox fan. And I remember going to Camden Yards and seeing Kevin Euclid smash a home run, J.D. Drew making a diving catch. I mean, those are my core memories. One of my core memories when it comes to baseball occurred just a few years after this picture was taken. The year is 2007, and the Red Sox are playing the Colorado Rockies in the World Series. The Red Hot Rockies, it was Rocktober, all right? They had won, I believe, 21 of their last 22 games until they faced the Red Sox. And uh, it's one of my core memories. I remember watching the game, and I remember uh, the last celebration when they celebrated Jason Veritek, the, the catcher, celebrating with the, the pitcher there. It was I was excited. My first real World Series that I got to watch. Uh, it was incredible. And I'm sure I had no idea where the Rockies were from. I had no idea really anything about Colorado and my 10-year-old self. Uh, it was just, hey, the Red Sox won. I was excited. Uh, who knew I would be going to Rockies games every year, you know, uh, being a, an adult. But anyways, the, the Red Sox, they went on to win uh, the 2013 World Series, the 2018 World Series, I mean, living on top of the world. However, the Rockies, it's a completely different story. Um, I'm sure if you follow the Rockies this season, you'll know uh, they're, they have the third worst record in baseball at this, at this point, only behind the Oakland A's and the Kansas City Royals. Uh, they've only been to the playoffs three times since this World Series appearance. And they have pretty much crashed and burned as a franchise. And that's not me being a rival fan. I do enjoy going to the Rockies. It's just a fact. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, consensus on what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, Forbes magazine wrote that the Rockies may, in fact, be the single most hopeless team in the four major United States men's sports. It's not looking hopeful. From the front office to the diamond, there's no real plan as an organization to do anything. You know, they actually have great attendance. You know, most of those fans are not even Rockies fans, but they, they rank like 13th uh, as far as attendance to Rockies games. They have a lot of money coming in, but the owners don't seem to want to do anything with that. There's a lot of potential. The Denver area is a fantastic play to ha place to have a sports franchise. You know, you're not going to have, you're going to have all the surrounding states coming to Denver to watch games. But yet, 
there doesn't seem to be a plan. There doesn't seem to be a vision for anything that they want to accomplish. That is the Colorado Rockies. But what would it be if our church had that same outcome? You know, we are living in a fantastic location where homes are literally being built up around us. We have homes, people coming to our church, coming to our community. We live in a prime location right next to C470 where people are driving past our location every single day. Over the past couple of weeks, we've had a clear mission and vision presented to us. Our mission is to know Christ and to make him known. That's our goal. That's where we're seeking to go. There's so much potential for our church. We have blessed, been blessed in so many ways. And if we're going to thrive as a church, as a church body, we are in need of one thing, and that is unity. Last week, I asked the question, is God worthy of glory? Is he worthy of glory? And the answer was a resounding yes. We saw God lifted up for his majestic nature in his awesome works. And we respond accordingly with worship, with love, and with service to him. And this week, my question is, is he worthy of unity? Last week, we looked at the vertical relationship that we have with God. The fact that we see him for his glory, so that causes us to worship him, to love him, and to serve him. But if we, God is worthy of glory, then that's going to affect our horizontal relationships as well. It's going to affect how we minister in the body of Christ, how we interact with those around us. God is worthy of glory, but he is also worthy of unity within the body of Christ. We must be united in purpose, in vision, and in relationships with one another. And we've had a lot of mission and vision presented to us lately. But it's up to the body of Christ, you all, us, to accomplish that mission together. Yet at the same time, Satan would love it dearly for division to pop up, for pride to create wedges between different people in this church. Satan uses our sinful human tendencies to get what he wants. As humans, we often think too highly of ourselves. We are puffed up in the view of our own opinions, talents, and abilities. We feel that we can walk into church on Sunday and worship God, but then turn and live in pride and live in self-ambition and conceit. This only causes divisions and rifts that prevent us from accomplishing the will of God. And unfortunately, I've seen in, in many churches, I've, I've seen people come away with a negative view of churches because they feel that a church is a very judgmental, critical, and self-promoting entity. Now, I'm thankful that that's not entirely the case with our church, but I do believe it is a danger. The sin of pride and division must be uprooted because it's often hiding below the surface where we can't see it. And it's ready to pop up and strangle us at any moment. Now, I know that you've heard this passage preached on probably many a times but I believe that this passage is critical to our church body at this very time. And that it's important that we grasp it as we proceed out with the vision, with the mission that Pastor Zach has presented to us. My desire is that when we leave this building today, we will have a greater love for God, a greater desire to serve one another, and a great desire to labor together for the cause of Christ. That was certainly Paul's desire 
He wanted this church at Philippi to be unified on the same mission. And we can learn a lot from this church. And the first thing that we can learn, excuse me, to accomplish God's will, this is our whole purpose this morning, to accomplish God's will for the church, we must live in a spirit of unity. We first see the plea for unification. The plea for unification. That's found in verse 1 and 2. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The request is simple. Be unified. Don't be divided. And this appears to be a big deal in the Philippian church. Paul addresses this subject a few different times. But in chapter 4, he calls out a couple of key offenders. He writes in chapter 4 and verse 2, I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers. Apparently this was an issue. And can you imagine being rebuked in scripture, rebuked by the apostle Paul for your division, for your pride? That's humbling. Yet I believe that this same issue is prevalent in today's churches, if not more so. Pride and division is so common. It's our human nature to puff up ourselves, to do whatever we want to do. This past week, I had the privilege of starting a new task that I wasn't expecting for this year, and that was to teach kindergarten PE. And let me tell you, it was an experience, all right? Um, you know, Becky Fuller and Letha Peets, they asked me to do that. And they, they said, can you teach them a couple sports? I was like, I'll do my best. I've never done this before. And I figured out that I was very uh, unprepared for what I was about to, to face. You know, I tried, I, I picked my favorite sport. I picked soccer. You know, I'm like, how hard can this be? You know, simple, don't use your hands, use your feet. We'll go from there. <clears throat> it was a train wreck. <clears throat> you know, I had kids doing, running the opposite direction, you know, running and doing whatever, falling on the floor, hugging each other. I, at one point, I had three kids crying on the ground because they were hurt and they fell. I'm like, this is, this is rough. Uh, we have a long ways to go. We're playing sharks and minnows. And uh, our, our natural desire is just to do whatever we want, we want to do and to ignore instruction because we're selfish, naturally. And I will be prepared next week, Mrs. Peets, for when I have PE. Don't worry. I'm ready to go. Uh, but it can hard to be, unif- be unified as adults as well, around a cause, around a job, or whatever goal we're trying to accomplish. And Paul realized this struggle as well. So he sets out to implore the Philippians through clear reason, and he first sets out, as you see, the foundation of the request. Again, that's found in Philippians 2 and verse 1. Again, he says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one cord, of one mind. The foundation here is things that unify as us as Christians. And Paul says, if there is any consolation in Christ, that word if is not putting doubt on these things. It's more of a assuming these things are true. Assuming we know these things because they are true. He lists out different descriptions. Consolation in Christ. This is the encouragement that we have all have in the finished work of Christ and the continuing work that we have being in union with him. 
the comfort of love. This is the love that flows from Christ that is directed toward all people who have believed. There's fellowship of the Spirit. And this fellowship is our direct relationship and indwelling of by the Holy Spirit. This is the fellowship that we all experience in salvation. And some people argue that this could be referring to the fellowship that we have with one another because of the Holy Spirit. But I believe based on this, this structure and the, what Paul is presenting here, he's pointing to the things that we all have in common to the basis of our faith, that we are all indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that we all have his presence dwelling within us. And finally, he points to the affection and mercy. And this is, a Paul, this is Paul's appeal to our very inner being, our emotion, our sympathy for others. Emotions and love that should be evident in the life of every believer. That when we see others who are hurting, when we see others who are going through struggle, we have a natural sympathy for those in the body. And Paul highlights these truths about the believer because they are common in every believer. These assumptions set the foundation for his request that we all experience Christ and his love and we all have the spirit. We all have care for one another. And assuming these things are true, Paul urges that they would grant his request. And the same sentiment is reflected in Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There is so much that the believer has in common with other believers. And these truths build the foundation for his request. If you are united in Christ, be united as the body. If we are united in Christ, then we would think that being united as his local body would come naturally. But that's not always the case. And Paul views our salvation as the foundation for this unity. It means he's trying to persuade this people. And this is not happening. Our sin nature, our flesh is constantly trying to get in the way. And so we have to come back to why we do what we do and who we are in Christ. But Paul elaborates, elaborates even further. He goes on to say, let's see here. Yes, the meaning of the request. All right. He goes on to clarify what this unity is. In verse 2, he says, uh, fulfill my joy By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Yes, Paul wanted unity in the church, but it's important to note the exact wording that he uses. He uses the phrases like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. It is one thing to be together as a group on a Sunday. It is even harder to be going in the same direction. Everyone has to be on the same page. Everyone has to be going in the right direction. I think sometimes we confuse unity with just being together. And so I think it's important to clarify what unity is not. We're we're, going to get there today. What unity is not, because we have different, I think, wrong 
misconceptions about what unity is. And I, I want to give a couple of things of what unity is not. First of all, unity, it is not outward conformity. The commentator Richard R. Mellick wrote, with this word and the context in which it occurs, referring to like-mindedness, Paul spoke of the values, ambitions, and ambitions which surface through the mind. This is unity. It is not found in an identical lifestyle or personality. It occurs when Christian people have the same value and loves. And Paul saw that in this church. This type of unity is not conformity. It's not just looking like everyone else around you. It's not outward, it's inward. And if we constantly focus on what we look at like, and if we look like one another, we're not going to accomplish the mission of the church. And this is a key passage on unity because Paul's not concerned about what we look like. He's concerned about where we're going and that we're going there together. He doesn't say make sure you all wear you know, the same clothes, you're wearing really nice clothes, or make sure you have the same hairstyle. Unity is found in direction, not just in the way that we look. Yes, there will be our conformity if we're following the same Bible and the same mission, but it's not just conformity. Second, it's not just a political viewpoint. And many of us in this room, we share many of the same political views. We might have similar views on issues like the economy, abortion, or who we're going to vote for. And though we have much in common, this is not biblical unity. I think this is, might be more of an issue in more conservative areas, where you might go to the South, where everyone has the same political views. But that can roll over into the church as well. And this can be difficult because America has historically been a promoter of good and biblical values. And historically, there's been so much overlap between the church and love for the country. And don't get me wrong, I love our country. But my allegiance is, is first and foremost to our Savior. I am a citizen of heaven first and foremost. That is most important. And we can't walk into the church and expect our unity to be founded on our political values. It must be on our love for Jesus Christ. Our purpose is to know Christ and to make him know, not to, not to lobby for a specific political group, not to promote a certain candidate. It is to be going in the same direction towards Christ. Again, I'm very thankful for our country. I'm thankful for its freedoms and that we get to proclaim the gospel freely. But I believe we are unique to some degree. I read a book a couple year, years ago called Jesus in Beijing. And the author highlighted the thriving church that is being developed in China. Of course, they can't be public. They're underground. They're meeting in homes. They're meeting in smaller community spaces. But the author made a comment that these churches, these members, they weren't interested in political reform. They were interested in knowing Christ and making him known. And this is a people that are being persecuted in any other place in a communist country where we would say, yeah, you should probably fight for political and governmental reform. They were more concerned about serving their savior than following their government. And I believe that should be our mindset as well. And finally, unity is not a common culture. It's not just us having shared interests in similar ways of life. You know, we can celebrate the same holidays, have similar hobbies, and even cheer for the same football team. 
Go Patriots. Oh, are you guys not on the same page as me on that? I guess not. We can easily mistake this for unity, where you find a group, a church that loves to fish or to hunt or loves the same sport that you do, loves the same hobby, and you can be unified in a church with those things and mistake that for biblical unity when that is the farthest thing from the truth. When I was in high school, in about 10th grade, my youth group got to go on a mission trip to St. Kitts in the West Indies. I mean, it was amazing. It was tropical. Uh, it was, you know, just clear water. It was a different culture altogether. You know, we, would, we did a VBS. We, did, we passed out tracks. It was a pretty incredible experience. And each day we would, we'd have VBS and, you know, oh, it's about to start in just like 10 minutes. And out of nowhere, all these kids would just come rushing out of the neighborhoods to this local church. No parents dropping them off. No child checking system. They were just, you're going to VBS. You're going to have a great time. You're going to play soccer. You're going to you know, learn from the Bible. You're going to play all these games. It was a different culture. Uh, St. Kitts is known as, uh, they're like the sugar boys. That's their, their mascot. You know, they, they grow so much sugar. That's their main, their main uh, I guess, export. You know, even when I ate a burger there, it tasted sweet because of all the sugar the cows were eating. I mean, it was, uh, it was a different type of, a different experience. But besides all the cultural barriers, the different ways of communicating, their different passions, our group was able to fellowship with him because of our common mission. And that was to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. That was the goal. And I'm sure many of you, if you've been to a foreign country, if you've been on a mission trip before, you can probably express that same sentiment because you know that our relationship with Christ is above anything else. It supersedes any other difference or any other common ground because we have Christ. And so as we meet together, yes, I hope there's, there's common ground, that we have similar interests, similar hobbies, things that we love. But I hope the thing that unites us together is our walk with God. Which leads us to, one, the meaning of the request, but we have to acknowledge the object of the request. As I've mentioned over and over, to be unified, there must be unity of direction. It's not enough to be standing in one place together. We must be going in the same direction, having the same goal. And Paul, he highlighted this. He's mentioned it over and over. And if we go back to chapter 1 and verse 27, it says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and I see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The object of our unity is Christ and his gospel. And we must be unified in mission. There's a reason that we say every week that our mission is to know Christ and to make him known. This is our mission. This is where we're going. And we have to be going there together. This is why each service we remind you of this. We want you to see Christ. We want you to be taken back by his glory, who he is, that we would draw closer to him. That's why we've highlighted the vision over the past couple weeks of how we get there how we grow, how we go. But the mission is essential. When we see Christ, we are changing to be more like him. 
2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, But we all with unveiled unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We gather here at this church to deepen our knowledge of Christ, to worship him as we walk with him. We are gathering here to know him more. So we must be unified around this. This must be reflected in our lifestyles. It must be reflected in our desires. It's simple. We treasure Christ. We treasure him. It's simple. Yet on the one hand, it may be simple, but it's the hardest thing to do as a church. And Paul realized that. And he he highlights here the thing that prevents us from accomplishing this And he says that there is a certain mindset that is required. The mindset that's required. Again, he says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Going back to my high school days, I've been going there a lot today, but I was, and somehow I got roped into the marching band. All right? Um, I thought about putting a picture of myself in marching band up here, but that's just too embarrassing for me. I need you to have a higher opinion of myself. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um, but it is embarrassing. But I was in the marching band. I did that from freshman year all the way to senior year, and it was exhausting. Uh, it was grueling. They treated us like we were in the military. My section leader would yell at me for messing up or playing a note wrong for being out of line, and we'd have to run laps for misbehaving. It was grueling. We would do this all summer long. We'd have to stand in attention And there would be kids passing out in the summer heat because they wanted to drill into us unity and excellence. When we marched in a parade, we would have to know how to stay perfectly in line. They taught us to be mindful of the person next to us so that we wouldn't go too fast or too slow, that we would stay directly behind the person in front of us. We had to have a mindset of excellence. And so that when we did parades, like the Thanksgiving Day Parade in Philadelphia, or our local Christmas parade, that when we, when we came into those high-pressure situations, we would know how to play, we would know how to march, and we would have the mind, the right mindset before even stepping foot onto that parade route, that football field. Because if we were distracted, if we were not focused, we wouldn't be able to accomplish the job. That's probably why I left my trumpet at home when I went to college. Uh, it was grueling. But we want, but this is the same thing that Paul is giving us here. He's saying if you're going to accomplish the mission, if you're going to be unified, you have to know how to act. It's the mindset that's required. And the first mindset, the first aspect of our thinking is that we must resist the promotion of self. Going back to verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Paul wanted the church to resist pride. Excuse me. He wanted them to walk in humility. And he gives two specific examples here. One, he says, ignore the sin of self-promotion. Self-ambition seeks to do things not for the good of others or of God, but so that we can have all the success, so that we can have all the glory, so that we get our own way. We puff ourselves up. We do things because we want them. 
And one of the biggest dangers, dangers to biblical unity is this pride. And often I see it popping up in the certain pride of opinion. It's the subtle view that my opinion is better than others. That my point of view carries more weight than anyone else's. I know more. I've experienced better things. So my opinion is best. I don't like the color of the carpet. My opinion should be best. I don't like the type of creamer that they have out in the lobby. I'm correct. It can be subtle. But it can be so destructive. Because when this selfish ambition, this self-promotion takes root, nothing else matters let alone the glory of God. And Proverbs 3, 5 and 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Our opinions don't stand to weigh anything in light of God's glory. We can't be guilty of promoting our own opinions promoting ourselves, but we must be careful to make sure that we have a high opinion of God so that our opinions are in the, in the correct place. But Paul, he highlights self-ambition, but he also hi- highlights conceit. And conceit is the idea of empty glory. It's the idea of puffing up oneself without real value. We can all pull ourselves up, praise ourselves, but it will never bring about true fruit. And we'll never have true value. And we can go on and on about the sin of pride. But we must make sure we take time to evaluate our own hearts. Spurgeon said, Pride is so natural to fallen man that it springs up in his heart like weeds in a water garden. Or rushes by a flowing brook. It is an all-pervading sin. And smothers all things like dust in the roads. Our flower or flower in the mill. It's every touch is evil. You may hunt down this fox and think you have destroyed it. And lo, your every exaltation is pride. None may have more pride than those who dream that they have none. Pride is a sin with a thousand lives. And it seems impossible to kill it. We must resist this pride. We must have an accurate view of ourselves. And the pride that dives into our hearts, that takes root. Because we're so easy to promote to elevate ourselves. But this, this destroys unity. It destroys everything that is good in a church because it goes against everything that God is and Christ has done for us. And Paul recognized that within God's plans, if we are to glorify him, a massive part is taking our eyes off of ourselves and learning to embrace the promotion of others. To embrace the promotion of others Verses three, verse four says, let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Again, we're taking our eyes off of ourselves and we're placing it on others. It's the embracement of promotion of others. This is the heart of unity. It's humility. It's the essence of living in the body. It is the service of others for the glory of God. And we do this by elevating those around us and lowering ourselves. And we must live in lowliness, constantly looking to promote others. And this is not living in a miserable way or a loathsome way. It is living with a right perspective of who you are before God. It is placing your desires underneath the desires of others. It is living with a heart of Christ. 
1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 echoes this. When Peter writes, likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. The same sentiment is echoed in James as well. That God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He wants to exalt those who humble themselves. Because God despises a prideful heart. A prideful heart is really saying, God, I'm better. I am better than what you've given me. And it's idolatry. It's rebellion. And God despises it. But when we humble ourselves, submit ourselves to God and to others around us, God loves that. God seeks to honor it. This passage says that we're supposed to be so humble that we are to be clothed with humility. It must cover ourselves so that everything that we do is not for our own glory, but for God's. That is the heart of the believer. But also we're supposed to be giving our attention to the needs of others. And this takes things to a different level. It's no longer just a mindset. It requires an action. It requires a radar to look out for the needs of others. There are people in this church who are going through hardship. So we must pray for them. We must comfort them. There are people in our church who have had physical trials, so we come alongside them and help them in any way that we can. I'm so thankful for our deacons over the past few weeks who have come together and said that we need to improve in this area. Well, we need to make sure that this is being accomplished. And they've taken people who have talents and needs, and they've sought to use those people to meet the needs of the body. I'm so thankful for their generosity. And there are people in this room who long before that program was put in place, you've already been meeting the needs of others. I'm so thankful for this church in this regard. I've seen your generosity over and over and again. You've come alongside people. You've taken your eyes off of yourself and you've looked towards the needs of others. And that is Christ-like. Pastors have a habit of mainly challenging congregations, which is needed. But I just want to make sure that I commend you for your generosity, for your Christ-like spirit. But it's also a call to continue, to grow, and to continue to look at the needs of others. And maybe you have a talent. Maybe you have a skill and you decided not to sign up for that list. I believe it's still out there. Maybe you haven't been looking at the needs of others. Take time to think, how can I be ministering to others? Maybe it's just prayer. Maybe you have a specific skill. Maybe you can give. I, I don't know what God will lay on your heart, but we need to be looking for the needs of others because it's a mindset that's not always easy. It's a mindset that can be easily swept aside for our own benefit. We each have a lot of things going on, don't get me wrong. We have a lot of stresses, a lot of you know, trials. We, we, most of us work jobs. We have a lot of things on our plate. But God doesn't use that as an excuse. He says, set your mind on others. This mindset of humility, it's hard, but it can only be accomplished with what Paul mentioned earlier in the passage. Our unity with Christ, our relationship with him, knowing that we have power that is not our own, that we are indwelt by the spirit who works out God's good through us. 
we must know that the love of Christ must take root in our hearts. And it's amazing that Christ is the center of everything. And Paul takes this time to present the model that we possess. That this model is Christ. And it's a role model for all of us to follow. We all have role models, people that we want to imitate. Whether it's a sports star, a motivational speaker, a mentor. We all have role models. When it comes to humility, the mind of Christ is our greatest model. And the first thing that Paul commands us to do here is that we take on the mind of Christ. In verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This, at first reading, this might seem like it's a passive thing. Where we let this mind take over us. No, this is an active. We're supposed to be having the mind of Christ. We take it on. We look at who Christ is and we purpose to accomplish that in our own minds, in our own heart. All of these things, they feel hard. But the beautiful thing is that we each have Christ. We are in Christ. And this gives us the power to follow his example. We follow his example. And that's presented to us in verses 6 through 8. Which says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If we ever have trouble being humble, if we ever have trouble with pride, my greatest advice to you is to look at Christ. Christ exemplified what true servanthood is, what true humility he he had. This passage is actually a really an ancient Christian hymn, at least it's believed to be so. And it's promoting both the glories of Christ and the foundation for our unity as a body of Christ. It displays servant leadership, which we all can follow. And Paul traces how the mind of Christ is evident in the life of Christ. It starts without who he is, that he is the God of the universe. We looked at that last week, that he is creator and sustainer. But yet this creator, he took on the form of creation And he became fully man while still still being fully God. He emptied himself. He gave up the glories of heaven. He gave up his omnipresence. He gave up many things to be there for us. He humbled himself. But he didn't just empty himself. He didn't just become a servant. He took the final step, which is the fact that he died for the sins of the world. The perfect eternal God died. He paid the penalty for us. And just think about that. He is a God that hates sin. That despises it with his entire being. And yet he decided out of love to take that upon himself. That is love. And that is humility. And all of us are here today because of this very act right here. Because of Christ. Because of his finished work on the cross. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we don't have to worry about sin. We don't have to worry about eternal life. Because we have a relationship with God that is better than anything that this world can offer. It's better than any prideful spirit that we can have. It's better than any self-promotion or any benefit that will come about because of pride. Christ is our possession. 
And because of this, we exalt the position of Christ. We come here today to worship him, to exalt him. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We exalt Christ for what he has done, for the relationship that we have with him. God exalts the humble. God rejects the prideful. Which are you? Are you more like Jesus Christ, the servant, who we've gathered here to know Christ, to be more like him? Or are you more like those fallen angels who decided to promote themselves in in the face of a holy God? It's the essence of pride. I hope we're here to be like Christ. To humble ourselves because again, Christ is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our strength. And in all these things, He is our treasure. Our relationship with the greatest man to ever walk this earth, the greatest servant, is the root of our unity as the body. We are the body of Christ. We are accomplishing His mission. And so in order to accomplish Christ's will for the body, We must live in a spirit of unity. We must be united in purpose and vision and in a relationship with one another. We are all in Christ. We have tasted of the saving grace. So now we live to accomplish that mission. Paul writes earlier in chapter one, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. Is that our heart as a church? That when we enter both this world, this church body, the people know that Christ is what we live for. Christ is our life. He is our purpose. He is our goal. And we are united in reaching that goal. So if God is worthy to you, there will be nothing greater than accomplishing his mission. So will you join us in seeking to know Christ and making him known? Before we bow in prayer, we have the Lord's table to observe this morning. So as I pray, deacons, uh, you're welcome to approach the table. But I encourage you, as we observe this ordinance that God has given us as a body, that we would be reflective of both pride in our own heart, how we can serve others, but that we would exalt him this morning as we observe the Lord's table. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you are you're greater than anything that we can possess in this world, than anything we can treasure. And Lord, you have given us the mission of knowing Christ, of knowing your son. And so as a church, may we be unified in that mission, unified in that goal, And may we eliminate, may we forsake all sin, all pride, all self-ambition, all conceit, so that we can dwell together in unity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.